Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for being present with us here tonight by your spirit, for giving us your word, so we're not left to sort of struggle to figure out what life is all about, as the writer of Ecclesiastes seems to struggle with, especially in what we just read. We pray that you would reveal to us your will, your plan, your goodness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, thank you all for being here tonight at Epiphany. It's great to be here with you the second Sunday in September. Uh, in case you have not met me before, my name is Eric. I'm the pastor here. Uh, we're a new church plant in the neighborhood. Just got started a little over a year ago. And uh, we're starting a new series in Ecclesiastes. We actually started last week uh, looking at Ecclesiastes, kind of the end of the book, uh, because I thought it was so appropriate to start there based on the topic. And tonight we're going to be looking at the first chapter, and then we'll just be moving through uh, each chapter each week that we gather here. Maybe a chapter, maybe not all the time. So, uh, so one of the beliefs that Christians have espoused for nearly all of history, and I would say it's not just Christians, but I think people who are even broadly theists, uh, would say basically a very, very short logical slash philosophical statement goes something like this. If there is no God governing the universe, then there is no ultimate meaning in the universe. Now that doesn't mean that people don't make up meaning or don't at least try to find meaning in the universe in all sorts of ways. They do. But it's just to say that if the universe is random, that it's accidental, that there is no driving force, then ultimately everything we do here is random and ultimately purposeless. And truth be told, some of the best philosophers, skeptics, and especially uh, stand-up comics as of late have been honest about this, have been real about this. So when it gets to the skeptic side of things, you have the famous quotes from people like Bertrand Russell who says, uh, unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. Pretty simple. Or Jean-Paul Sartre in a really cheery statement says, man is a useless passion. It is meaningless that we live and it is meaningless that we die. Hey, hey. As people come across these seeming absurdities, I think there's a few ways that they try and handle it if they do not believe in a God. Uh, first is just to try and sort of pretend. And, and the honest among us will admit that. Like Woody Allen uh, was an oppressor after a recent release of a movie, and he was asked about a scene, uh, and, he, and he basically said, you know, I'll quote it for you, he said, I do feel that life is a grim, painful, nightmarish, meaningless experience, and that the only way you can be happy is if you tell yourself some lies and deceive yourself. But then you have the other side of the coin that just says, well, if we're, you know, we might as well not even pretend that there's meaning. Let's just acknowledge there isn't. Let's just say it's nothing's important. So one of the pundits I follow on Twitter, I remember during the craziness of the 2016 uh, presidential election, put as his pinned tweet the first thing that you saw on his page, LOL, nothing matters. So you just give up. You just resign. You're just like, 
whatever, might as well try and have a little pleasure in this moment of craziness because in some way we're all going to die. So might as well try and face life with a little pleasure. But then there's the third way, and it eventually gets here for everybody. And that's the way that's actually, I think, best espoused by stand-up comedians today. And that is to say life is meaningless. And yes, we need to laugh at it because it's the only thing we got. It's at least try and feel a sense of pleasure for a little bit. But in reality, in reality, it's sad. And anybody who has known a stand-up comic, uh, most of stand-up comedians are not the happiest people off stage. There's an awful lot of depression in that world. And it appears that the author of Ecclesiastes has gotten to a similar place. He begins his book, Vanity, Everything is Vanity. Or in some translations, it says, Meaningless, Meaningless, Everything is Meaningless. Now, he says that in light of what he's going to tell us he's done throughout the rest of the book. See, what he says he's going to do, this whole book is an exploration of trying out everything life has to offer and getting as much wisdom, obtaining as much wisdom as life can give you. And after finding out everything and experiencing everything you possibly can, or at least back then, that's his assessment. And in chapter 1, I think he gives three reasons for why he assesses the world from a temporal perspective. Like, if God is not in the picture, he assesses the world, he gives three reasons for why it seems, at least, meaningless. The first one, he says it this way in verses 9 and 10, because nothing ever seems to change. Listen to what he says. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. Now, there might be a part of you that protests upon hearing that. And the protest goes something like this. What are you talking about? Of course things change. I mean, in my lifetime, I can remember a time where there was no internet, and now there is internet everywhere. There is internet in my pocket. There is internet on my iPad. There is internet everywhere. I can remember a time where the iPhone was not a thing, and now it is a thing. I can remember a time when Uber did not exist, and now it's everywhere. And I could go on and on. Of course, things change. The author is not a dunce. He's not... He doesn't, it's not like he doesn't recognize, and there wasn't technological or medical advancement back in his day, and there was. Now, what he's saying, it goes deeper than that, is he says, he says, you know, no matter what, no matter how much we do seem to change, history seems to repeat itself. No matter how many times we think we're getting better, we tend to go back to the same cycles. I'll give me an example at the turn of the last century, 20th century, there was an incredible optimism in the Western world for what we were capable of doing, for what mankind was going to accomplish. And so you have quotes from people like uh, the great secular humanist H.G. Wells in 1937 saying shortly before World, II, World War II would break out, quote, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace 
and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength. H.G. Wells, 1937, shortly before the breakout of World War II. And then, of course, what happened? In this great period of technological advancement and creativity and so much optimism, what happened is the world went back to doing what it's done. War and pillaging, bloodshed, pain. And ended up using the technological advancements, the changes, in order to inflict pain in many observers. It doesn't take a genius to figure this out recognize the 20th century is certainly the bloodiest century. And so shortly after the war, in 1946, you have a quote from H.G. Wells again, the same guy. Quote, the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished, has come near to breaking my spirit all together Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out, I'm afraid. End quote. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes is getting at when he says things never seem to change. It just, it seems to be that history repeats itself over and over and over again. And why is it that history repeats itself like this so constantly? Well, he tells us because the world seems irreparable. He says in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. When I was a teenager, I was on a basketball team that um, was in a tournament in Minnesota. And during that tournament, I jammed my finger. I don't know if any of you have jammed your finger when you're playing basketball, but it hurts a lot at first when you do it. Uh, but I thought it was just the normal jamming of a finger, and then a couple days later it was turning colors that your finger is not supposed to be, and I realized I probably did more than just jam it. And sure enough, I broke it and never really did anything about it because, you know, I was a kid and I was tough and that's yeah, not going to bother me. Well, as a matter of fact, now my pinky is permanently bent. I cannot straighten it any more than that. This one's nice and straight, but this one, nice and bent. There's nothing I can do about it. I mean, unless I was to go get surgery for a pinky, but you know, you don't need to do that. The author of Ecclesiastes looks around at the world and sees a place that is bent. Indeed, that is the testimony of the rest of the Bible. But it's also the testimony of the best art, too, by the way. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but... Uh, if you think of some of the best television shows, especially over the last 10 to 15 years, you're going to see that even the heroes, even the people that, that they want you to look up to, that you want to be like, have this struggle. It's what makes the characters interesting. So you think about the show Breaking Bad, one of my favorites, and they, that's a masterful show because the hero ends up becoming a villain that you can't stand. Or you have, sorry if that was giving something away to you, by the way, or shows like The Wire, where even the heroes are all bent up. Curb your enthusiasm. The main character is kind of lovable, but also just kind of a jerk. I mean, in every, like, you just, you don't want to necessarily be him. 
And I could go on and on. The best art presents us as we are. Bent. Broken. Flawed. On the other hand, one of the reasons that, I, that Thomas Kincaid's art was so easily dismissed by the world is because it presented a world that none of us really could relate with. For some, it was comforting, the hope of a place of light and purity and hope. But for many, there was something off-putting about it because it didn't reflect anything about reality. Nevertheless, there have always been those that have thought if they just tinker enough with humanity, with society, do enough social engineering, that maybe, just maybe, we can unbend the problem, straighten it out, make everything right. And yet a strange irony of history is that those often who have gotten into power with the most utopian visions for humanity have also ended up doing the most bending of humanity and the most breaking. I don't know if you've seen the Netflix documentary series Wild Wild Country. It's fairly recent, but if you haven't, I'd, I'd uh, encourage you to check it out. It's fascinating. It's a documentary series that details this cult following who they called the, the Bhagwan, this sort of guru-type figure from India. And what it was is thousands upon thousands of people decided to move to this outside of this small, tiny town in Oregon and establish their own city. And I mean, they did. I mean, they, the infrastructure was incredible. Uh, they, they, they did everything you needed to do. Thousands of people built this colony. Well, it turned out that not all the people that have been in this small, small town for a long time were very comfortable with this huge group of people coming in and taking over. And so they made things, you know, a little uncomfortable for them. Tensions started to rise. And the utopian vision that was that this city started off to be ended up becoming a dystopian nightmare as people began getting poisoned in order to protect the true colony, as people began getting threats and people began carrying massive weaponry in order to protect themselves either against the cult or against the townspeople. Now it just turns out that no matter what, the author of Ecclesiastes says, I look around at humanity, it seems bent. There's nothing that can unbend it. There's nothing that can straighten it out. You see, behind the world's problems, there's a theological term. Behind this problem is what theologians refer to as a high anthropology. High anthropology just means that we believe that human beings are capable of near perfection or getting there, more and more and more and more progress. It's very fundamental to the American way of thinking. Everything's always getting better and better and better and better and better. That's the way we've sort of been raised to think. But biblically speaking, man is seen differently. Mankind in its nature has a low anthropology. Unable to save themselves. Unable to unbend. And so that leads to the third reason the author mentions for why it seems the world is meaningless. And he says, because even if you acquire as much knowledge and wisdom as possible in this world, 
The sad reality is, with more wisdom comes more vexation. Another way of saying it is more worry and grief. There's a reason the phrase ignorance is bliss exists, right? I mean, I remember when I was 20, I did feel like I had a whole lot figured out about what I was going to do in my life. I did. I just had a sense of a very clear path going forward. I had a very clear direction. And now that I'm 40, I realize I know no things. Or very few things. And almost all the ideas I had when I was 20 about how life was going to go have not ended up going that way. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't plan, and it doesn't mean that we don't try and pursue knowledge and wisdom. It doesn't mean that. He's not saying not to do that, although he does say at the very, uh, in chapter 12, verse 12, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. I know some of you are just starting to study NYU right now, and you're saying amen to that. Of much study is a weariness of the flesh. But he's not saying we shouldn't study. He's not saying we shouldn't pursue wisdom. But he's just saying, listen, even with all the wisdom you can attain in the world, it still won't give you the meaning that you fundamentally need for life. So what's the solution? If I was to just keep you here in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, the fact is there is none. I mean, the chapter literally ends with the word sorrow. It's just one big downer after another. But the fact is, um, when we preach from one part of the Bible, we want to make sure that we get an accurate picture from all of the Bible. There's a principle in the church known as interpreting Scripture with Scripture. And what we come to find out is that though... The bleak picture created by the author of Ecclesiastes in chapter 1 seems true. There is another picture created for us in the rest of the story. So let's take the different claims that the author makes according to the rest of Scripture. Does history repeat itself? Yes, sure. But... The Bible also promises all throughout, but especially in the book of Revelation, that though for our, from our perspective it seems that history is just repeating itself and isn't going anywhere, in fact, God is bringing history to a climax. That he is working through the ups and downs and the valleys and the mountains and everything else that we experience on any given day, that there is something happening with this history. Is the world bent? Sure. Of course, we see it all the time. We're going to walk out here tonight, and we'll see evidence of it as people honk their horns way too quickly for no good reason. Yes, the world is broken, but is it really unfixable? No. True, we cannot fix ourselves, but the Bible says, in fact, Jesus Christ came to this world to fix which was, that which was broken, to redeem that which was enslaved, to forgive sinners and declare people to be new creations in him. And sure, in this life, is there more worry and vexation with more knowledge and wisdom? Sure, of course. But the Bible also tells us 
that though we see as through a glass darkly this world, that we don't understand it all, one day we will see clearly. And when we see, it will actually bring true peace and true joy. Rather than bringing worry and vexation, it will actually bring joy. And the means by which God has caused this great reversal of this seemingly meaningless universe to come about is through Jesus Christ breaking into history, ending the seemingly endless succession of history repeating itself. Through Jesus Christ becoming bent on the cross for your sins and my sins, God declares to the world that they are whole again, that they are fixed again. Through Jesus Christ, the one the Apostle Paul refers to as the wisdom from God, we can believe with great confidence that this world is far from meaningless, but in fact is bursting, bursting at the seams with meaning and significance and purpose. So that when you go to school tomorrow or when you go to your job tomorrow, no matter how meaningless it may feel, in fact, God is working through you there to do all sorts of amazing things. So some of you will go out of this place or out of this city someday and you will be doctors that will fix people and bring healing to people. Some of you will go out to the, to the world and be lawyers and will fight for the rights of people that have been unjustly accused. And the list could go on and on. There's careers like that and there's callings which seems small, but God says he's working through it all. It's not meaningless. Psychologist and author Emily S. Ohani Smith said in a recent talk on PBS that social scientists have pinpointed what will give a person a meaning life, meaningful life, and it's surprisingly simple. She says we need to see, our, see ourselves as part of a bigger story. Jesus Christ comes to you and says, you're a part of my grand narrative. You're a part of my story. I've integrated you into it, and I'm going to use you in it to serve the world around you. I'll close with a quote from Morton Kelsey, great writer. Time passed, and then we'll pray, and we'll go to the table together. Morton Kelsey says, quote, If we indeed are part and parcel of a meaningless universe, the kind in which Jesus could be murdered on a cross with no resurrection, then frankly being depressed only makes good sense. Under these conditions, the sensitive and sensible person will be depressed. But, I have discovered only one event in history that redeemed all this evil for me and gave me hope. The resurrection of Jesus. Allowing the resurrected one to be constantly present, I can deal with all the evil suffered by Jesus, by my friends and by me. I can face all the rape and the pillage and the war and the hatred that I hear about daily and still have hope that there is meaning in spite of it. The resurrection reveals the ultimate nature of the universe. And the, the risen Christ is the one who has victory. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for that word. Yes, there are many things that on the face of it, like the author of Ecclesiastes observes, seems to be meaningless. So give us faith, Lord. Grant us faith to believe 
in you, the God who enters into history so that it no longer will repeat itself one day, of the God who becomes bent on our behalf, and of the God who offers all wisdom that brings peace instead of vexation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we're going to take an offering. If this is your first time here, please feel no pressure to give at all. If you'd like to give, however, there's going to be a tray that will be passed around. There's also a square reader in the back if you'd like to use a card. And finally, you can give uh, through Venmo to Epiphany Church NYC. And while we take the offering, the worship team will sing a song. This next song is a song that the worship team wrote together because we're passionate.